Welcome, everyone, once again to the Toward Wholeness podcast, where our desire is to provide tools for you to take steps toward wholeness in spirit, soul, and body. One of the greatest challenges for those who are seeking to live a life of faith and a life walking with Christ often seems to be uh, how people respond to loss and difficulty and health challenges and financial challenges. As a pastor, I can tell you over the years, many of the hardest conversations I've had have been with people who began the life of faith and then somewhere along the way, something happened. Uh, It may have been the loss of a job. It may have been an implosion in the family in some way. It may have been a betrayal. But whatever happened, some difficult circumstance caused people ultimately to walk away from their faith. And that's very sad to me because I think a look at what the Bible has to say about suffering indicates to me that God has never promised us immunity from living in this difficult yet beautiful world, but God has promised to walk with us through this world. And so I'm honored to have a guest today who's also a good friend of mine, Dave Burns. Dave was a lay pastor at Peninsula Bible Church in the Bay Area in California in the 90s, started some men's ministry there, led worship there. I know from firsthand experience that Dave is an outstanding worship leader and an incredibly talented keyboard player as well. And he's now the director of adult ministries at one of my favorite places in the world, Mount Hermon Christian Conference Grounds, just outside of Santa Cruz on the coast of California. So Dave, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. I'm grateful for your friendship and I know a bit of your story, so I'm grateful in advance for what you'll bring to this conversation. Well, thank you, my friend. Thanks for the introduction and it's great to be with you. Often people lose their faith because of difficult things that have happened. And so just to set up a framework for our conversation, maybe you can share a little bit of your own story, your own biography in a sense so that we can understand some of the peaks and valleys in your own experience in your life with God. So maybe begin by talking about your own discovery of faith and then uh, how that faith was formed and challenged through some difficulties in your life. Well, it goes back to Peninsula Bible Church, which you mentioned. Out of sheer respect to a relationship, a couple that my late wife and I knew invited us to a home fellowship that was sponsored by PBC. And we said, okay, reluctantly, but we said, okay. And in the course of that time, uh, meeting in that home fellowship, we both gave our lives to Christ and just never turned back. So it was a rich time of growing in the Lord, being mentored, uh, come alongside, seeing so many different things and able being able to travel the world on missions trips, those sort of things. So you mentioned... Um your late wife, and I know that your story of your relationship with your wife is central to some of the things that we're talking about here today. So just continue on with the story and uh, share a little bit about uh, how things unfolded for you guys as a couple. Sure. We were living in Colorado, and Terry went through um, a surgical procedure, and ultimately they gave her the option of being put on some estrogen which we didn't really understand at the time that could possibly lead to cancer. And we moved, we were called to a ministry in Orange County and about a week and a half into our stay there, I got a phone call from my wife and it was said, honey, I, 
I went in to have something checked. Um, I've got stage 3B breast cancer. Mm. Now, the background of that is Terry was an RN for many, many, many years. And she just told me, she said, this is going to be a tough battle. What I have is not easy. And she fought it hard for three and a half years. And then, um, you know, it's interesting. You're, we're taping this on her birthday, which is today, August 6th. Oh, wow. And I don't know when this will actually be released. But she went home to be with the Lord on August 16th, 2004. And in the midst of that, we traveled some incredibly wonderful times together, as hard as they were. And you begin to grieve loss in the midst of that journey because there's just certain things that you couldn't do any longer. That's right. And we both recognized that. And our kids recognized it. We have three children. And so it, it finally came to be that when she passed, um, actually, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my, my life, Richard, was I asked Terry two days before she passed, may I read you a scripture? And she said, sure, because she had just been fighting so hard. And it's that passage that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where, therefore, we don't lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Mm. Our light momentary troubles are achieving for us eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And this is really what I stress. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And Terry just had an incredible relationship with the Lord. And I finally said, honey, you're holding on for us. She says, I'm trying so hard. And I said, don't. It's, it's time for you to go home and to be with the one that you just love, the one that is not seen right now. And uh, two days later, she passed, went home to be with wow. the Lord. Wow. So for you to say that to her reveals to me something of your faith in that moment as well. I'm curious if you could unpack that. I have sat with my dad when I was 17 and held his hand in the hospital the night that he died and with my mom when she passed away, and my sister died suddenly of a heart attack when she was 43 years old. Um, and always for me also, I think there's been a confidence, but I would almost call it a hope, and yet a little bit of question at the same time. Is this real? Like to say that to her is a very courageous thing to say. So talk about your own faith formation as you're thinking about losing your spouse uh, to, to at least time here. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I can't say that I didn't question the Lord in the midst of it because it was a constant questioning. And certainly I prayed for a miraculous healing because I did not want to lose my wife. Yeah. We've been together for over 25 years. And in that journey, I finally gained a new life verse. And it was Isaiah 55, 8 where it says that whole idea that for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Mm. And, and it was the idea that I realized that God is sovereign. He gifted me with my wife for a long season, and obviously in sickness and health, and it was that covenant bonding that we had. But the question I had to travel in those three and a half years, am I willing to give up my wife and still trust in you, Lord? 
And that's what I came to grips with, is that I will always trust him. He's sovereign. He, he knows what he's doing. I can question him, but his thoughts are not my thoughts. Have you ever read uh, A Grief Observed by C.S. Yeah. Lewis? Yeah. So is it interesting to me how he goes through this, I don't even know the right word, but it's a, there's a questioning of everything. When I talk to people pastorally, I encourage people to be unafraid to lament. So is, was there, and has there been elements of lament along the way? I sometimes feel like evangelicals are afraid of lament, like we're good at saying things like, God is always good all the time. And while there's truth in that, there's also in our hearts this longing for a companion that we've lost or a longing for justice in the midst of an unjust world. How was lament shaped as part of your theology as a result of what you went through with your wife? You know, as a Jewish believer, we talked about that for so long, being raised as a Jew, the Psalms of lament. And I, I think I understood but didn't understand the depth of grieving. And when I lost my father some years ago, I realized I cried so hard at his graveside that I couldn't control it. It was something that was just coming from my gut. Mm. And uh, it caught me by surprise and the depth of that kind of pain. And the same thing happened with Terry. And at the same time, there was joy that she was no longer bound in this body that was so wrecked in pain, but that she was just free to be with the Lord that she loved. But did I lament it? Yes. There were, there were times that I just had to travel with the thought that, Lord, what next for my kids? How are they processing this? I had a my youngest had just graduated high school and was starting his first year at Azusa Pacific University. And for mom not to be there, all those kinds of issues to come up and and watching them having to lament and go through grief of their own uh, just sent me to my knees on a constant basis. At the same time, you know, both you and I as, as pastors over the years have, have married and buried. And there are just lots of folks that I watched and I watched in grieving processes. And there were some that I did not want to be like. And I, I read this book on grief. And one of the things that really stood out to me, Richard, was this one phrase. And it said, the God of the good old days can be trusted to be the God of the good new days, if you let him. So many people that I've watched over the years keep holding tight, clenched fists to what they had, as opposed to opening their hands in complete to surrender to the Lord with the mindset of, okay, Lord, what's next? And just surrendering yourself to what he has in store for you. Well, you know, one of the books that is not read nearly enough, in my opinion, in the scriptures is the book of Ecclesiastes. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Ecclesiastes 7.10, which says this, do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these days? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Mm. And, you know, Ecclesiastes has this whole bit in its third chapter. The poet says, hey, there's a time for everything. And that means that there's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to grieve and lament, a time to sing and rejoice. And I do think in the construct of our American consumerist culture, what we're trying to sell people is the lie that there is no time to die. There is no time to grieve. There is no time to lament. Mm. And in reality, 
at least in my own life, I've found that some of those times of grief and lament have actually deepened my intimacy with Jesus and shaped my life journey in ways that sometimes the high points are wonderful and enjoyable, but some of the most profound shaping moments have come precisely out of loss. Yeah, I concur with that. Absolutely. You realize along the path of your own grieving, and then in the years that progress, the Lord's given you a whole new area of ministry because you can empathize, you can come alongside, you can help nurture and counsel folks that are going through a similar process that you've been through. And you do it not out of necessity as much as you do it out of love for the fact that they're actually traveling this journey. How has the loss and the lament shaped your faith and shaped your ministry and calling? Because obviously you're not a, you're not in Orange County anymore. You're not in Colorado anymore. You're now at a conference center on the coast of California. Can you draw some links between the experience of loss and how your journey has unfolded subsequent to them? Well, yeah, but it's quite a story and I'll try and keep it short. Terry died, as I mentioned, on August 16th in 2004. In 2005, that same time frame, I had already committed to co-lead a week of family camp with Luis Palau at Mount Hermon. And I went, actually went to my kids and just said, look at you guys, this is dad's last hurrah at Mount Hermon. This has taken the wind out of my sails. It's just been a source of joy to be leading in worship there and teaching. But at the same time, it's been a source of joy for our family because you kids have been reared there over the course of so many years because I came back year after year. So we get to Mount Hermon and my daughter, Sarah, who was 22 at the time, comes to me and says, Dad, as hard as this week is and as hard as what I'm going to say, there's a woman I want you to meet at Mount Hermon. And I looked at her and said, sweetie, I'm still hurting. And it's a year afterwards. And... God just hasn't put on that on my heart to start a dating relationship. So she grabs me by the lapels, looks me straight in the eye, and said, Dad, her name is Leslie. I want you to meet her, date her, and marry her. <laughs> and Well, that's exactly what I did. I laughed. I said, what are you talking about? She said, look, she's been a mentor in my life. I've worked for her at Mount Hermon for over five summers. And just like mom's been a mentor in my life. And my late wife, Terry, had a, an incredible sense of humor. And a few weeks before she passed, she handed a yellow sheet of paper to my kids and said, listen, two things. I don't want you to get in the way of dad remarrying. I want him to love again. And I think God's going to call him to that. But on this sheet of paper is the list of the women I do not want him to date. <laughs> So here's my daughter telling me this, and you know this as a pastor, the least thing you would ever hear is coming out of your daughter that she wants you to date and remarry another woman. That's right. She said, look, Dad, if there was ever somebody on that list that Mom wanted you to date, it would be Leslie. And so one thing led to another. The little I knew about this whole situation is my youngest son, Josh, also had an incredible relationship. And they lied through their teeth and set the two of us up. <laughs> and here's where I'm going with this story. I asked Sarah some, I quizzed her on some things. Well, what is her background? Talk to me. Well, she went through a very tragic divorce and she's been raising her five children as a single mom for many years. Oh, no, no. She said um, she's been raising her children for her as a single mom. So I said, children, how many? 
and she raised up one hand and wouldn't even say the word five. <laughs> wow. And so I asked, is, well, Dad in the picture? She says, no, not really. I said, the, the conclusion I have to come to is you're asking me to marry a woman I've never met and raise a family again because her youngest was 11 at the time. And she pulled the God card and she said, no, the Lord wants you to. <laughs> Don't you hate that when that happens? I, oh, my gosh. So the reality is, is that we ended up in a dating relationship and a year later got married and I uprooted my life in Southern California, realizing that the God that we worship is a God of surprises. And I never could have written this script, but he did. And he used her kids and my kids to allow it to unfold. So I came to Mount Hermon, who knew me really well, and I knew them. And they asked me if I'd be willing to come on staff. Wow. I didn't know... You and I have hung out quite a bit, and I didn't know most of that story. So thank you so much uh, for sharing that. And it is one of those things that's an important piece of every person's story is that when we walk into valleys, the story still isn't over. You know, God has new chapters in all of our lives, and it's important that we allow God to bring those new chapters into our lives that we would never have anticipated. I sometimes think that we're taught to set goals and we end up with a script in our minds of what the future is supposed to be. And we go after it with a lot of gusto, but we don't leave room for, to use your language, uh, the surprises of God. And if we miss the surprises of God, my own thought from the scriptures is that we'll miss most of what God has for us in this life. Hmm. Yes. So that was 15 years ago then, and you raised those five kids as well. Yeah, and, and this is the wonderful part of the, the story is that you know, you know, you'll recognize that whole thing of adoption in the Bible, that we are adopted as sons and daughters. And you realize that I didn't adopt their, her children, but I certainly adopted them into my life. And the Lord allowed me to love and allows me to love her children, her biological children, unconditionally like I love my own. And then he gave me the chance to, to love again, love a woman like she hadn't been loved before. Wow. So I just looked back and just realized, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. What a treat. And so you've seen valleys and God's provision and lament. And you and I both have also seen people who, in the midst of loss, just become bitter. Why do you think that is given that many times the people who become bitter are people who they've grown up in the church and they know all the words that you and I know about Jesus and the sufficiency of Jesus. And yet somehow that doesn't translate into a capacity to walk through a valley of grief and come out on the other side. Why do you think that happens so often, Dave? Well, that's such a great question. For some, it just becomes wallowing in self-pity. We recognize that. There's a selfishness that goes along with that. I mean, I was selfish. Gosh, I missed my wife so much and just longed for her. And I mean, even days like birthdays and other things, uh, what I see in my kids of her, I still, you know, just miss her so much. And yet God has given me the opportunity to love again. And I love Leslie so much. You know, so oftentimes I'll ask the question for people in positions like you just described, what would your wife or your, sp your, your lost spouse or a loved one who has passed away, if she or he or she could speak to you right now, what do you think they would say? In other words, 
What do they want for you in your life that's happening right now that maybe you're not grasping? And usually there's dead silence for a moment. They would usually say, she wants for me what I'm not embracing at all. And that's to love life and to be open to love again. Mm. And I, I say, yeah, because I think that's what God wants for all of us. Is that he's not just doing this to take a loved one from us and beat us up again. I mean, even if you look at the story of Job, it all unfolds again for him. And there's joy in his life. But so many people are afraid to embrace that. I don't know if I have a great answer to that, but it's just what I've seen. And that's a good word. The other word I would add, I think, is uh, I try pastorally to tell people two things. Number one, control is an illusion. There tends to be in an evangelical faith sometimes some notion that we've made a transaction with God. And Mm -hmm. so in exchange for our faith and our list of things, whatever that list includes of activities like going to church and giving money and serving in different ways, and whatever list of sins I'm supposed to be avoiding, there's this tacit expectation that God's payment is some measure of health and wealth. So that when that doesn't come through for us, we not only feel betrayed, but we're like, what happened to the formula? And Mm -hmm. I try and tell people, God never made that formula. We invented that formula. God says to us all through the Bible, look, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. You get up every morning. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Don't even worry about tomorrow. It'll take care of itself. Just live this day. Live it faithfully. And whatever God brings, be grateful for it, you know? And and I think sometimes people are not only grieving, but they're at some intellectual or philosophical level, asking, what did I do wrong that this happened to me? It's like, if I'd have eaten differently, if I'd have prayed more, if I'd have, you know, if I'd have been a better spouse. And I just say to people, look, we live in a fallen world and none of us are immune. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing that I think is really significant is the reality that all of us are going to die. We're going to die so that we can rise again, because I can't rise again until I die. So rather than grieving something that the Bible already tells me is inevitable, and by grieving, I mean kind of wallowing in a grief until it ferments and becomes bitterness, like I want to live in a way that remembers the good, you know? I'll never forget, my dad died in 1973, Dave, when I was 17 years old. And I thought I'd kind of dealt with the grief, I graduated from high school and my dad was gone. And from college, my dad was gone, got married. My dad was gone. And I think I'd been married about four years. And my wife and I went to watch Kevin Costner movie called Field of Dreams. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't even like Kevin Costner. And I went because my wife wanted to go. But the thing is, it was a baseball movie. And I grew up where like baseball was the thread that tied my dad and I together. And so my dad would be, he's the school principal and he's, you know, out in the field in this kind of rural school district in outside of Fresno, California. And on Saturdays, I'd go to the office with him and then he, I'd come into the office and he'd put the pin down. He'd say, Hey, you want to play a little catch? And then we'd go outside, we'd throw the ball. He'd hit me fly balls. So I'm in this Kevin Costner Field of Dreams movie. And when Kevin Costner's dad comes out of a cornfield and he basically has come back from the dead and he says to his son, do you want to play a little catch? I mean, Dave, 
you couldn't believe I was sobbing so loud that everyone around me is looking. I mean, it's embarrassing how, how much I was crying at a dumb baseball movie. But what it does is it brought up for me all these positive, profound memories. I think these tears around loss, if they're healthy tears, they're not just, they're not tears of anger. It's loss, but it's also gratitude. It's like, wow, my dad loved me. We played catch. He'd come home from work and we'd play basketball and he invested in me. And look at all the years we did have, the 17 years I did have, rather than just fixating on the loss. And so I think cultivating gratitude helps as well. Absolutely. And it's just, you recognize what God has created, that power of love that just infiltrates our lives, how we can long for it again and move forward in it as well. Right after COVID hit, my daughter, Sarah, who is now 39, I got a call. She had been raced to the hospital in an ambulance and they were afraid that she was coding and they couldn't even take her to Kaiser. They went to another hospital just because she was in such bad shape. She has a rare a rare lymphatic disease. And ultimately, the short of the story is she shouldn't have survived this. And she's got two kids who are sitting outside my room getting ready for bed right now. As we speak, I've got two of my grandkids down here. She's married to this incredible man who's just been by her side. He's a pastor. Hmm. But I looked at my daughter and realized all that she's been through over the course of so many years. And I didn't even get to see her until way, way after the fact, because because of COVID, they wouldn't allow any of us into the hospital to even see her. So she was going through this whole process by herself. And uh, so she's still in in a recovery mode, but spent 14 days in ICU. And, And in the midst of that, I thanked God for the love that he had brought into her life with her husband and her children. I thank God for the joy that she's been in my life over all the course of the years. And I particularly thank God for the incredible relationship that Sarah has with the father. Mm. And just that she even recognized, if I lose this earthly battle, I'm gaining heaven. Well, that kind of gratitude, I think, is sustaining. And I know for some, that act of gratitude is an act of faith. But I think I'm encouraged by your story, and I hope sharing my own, that that act of faithfully giving thanks isn't tinny or hollow, but it's actually rooted in this belief that God gives us the days that God gives us, and they're beautiful and glorious. But when it ends, and it does end, it's not the end of the story. And this this gives us great hope, you know. So one last question. I mean, all that you've gone through in your personal life to adapt to loss and challenge certainly must be helpful now as all of us are dealing with loss and challenge in our professional lives. What do you have to say to people who are in the midst of COVID uncertainty, struggling with working from home and being alone or not knowing about work or facing financial challenges? Because I know the the ministry that you lead uh, is in the thick of all of that. Yes, we are. The one thing that's been said over the years that you hear in corporate environments so oftentimes is the phrase that crisis breeds opportunity. Yep. And I look at families who are going through it, and if they're having to work from home, they're being forced to work from home. Kids can't be in school. They may be doing, like much of the country, online schooling this year. Crisis does breed opportunity. And for some, it can be the opportunity to sit down and have dinner with a family that they so rarely get to do that with. 
and talk about deep things and laugh and struggle together and realize that post-pandemic, as they look back on this time, they may just be remorse that, oh, we can't do that. Things have gotten back to some sense of normalcy and we're not having all these interactions and meals together. Right. And the hard part for me is that, unfortunately, sometimes opportunity doesn't work out as well. And people are at home with their kids and not knowing what to do. And things such as CPS calls go up and oh, yeah. more struggles in marriage relationships that need to be worked through in the midst of hardship. Can we hang together as a family and love one another unconditionally? That's beautiful. And I mean, it is a good segue to conclusion because uh, I think the macro story of the scriptures and really God's story in human history is this pattern of order, disorder, reorder. And God's desire is that the reorder would always arise out of the ashes of disorder in a way where the reorder is better than the original order. And it's beautiful to hear your testimony, Dave, and see order, disorder, reorder in your family life. And as we muse on this in our own context of ministry, we're mindful that the the whole world is in the state of collective disorder right now. And the encouragement in the moment is if we look at what God has done throughout history, those who walk with God through the disorder come into a state of reorder that's better. So it's not like we want to just get back to February 2020. We're anticipating something better on the far side of this crisis. I haven't told you this, but I have quoted you so often on that very thing. The God of order that allows the disorder that creates this new order. Uh, Because I happened to tune in to one of your your online services and heard that and just impacted me in such an incredible way. Well, I'm grateful for your uh, authenticity in sharing your story with us today, Dave. And my prayer and hope is that what you've shared today will help others who are walking through valleys. We'll also put a link up uh, on the podcast here to Mount Hermon Conference Center, where Dave runs Adult Family Ministries. A lot of retreats that they offer there or will offer once they're able to again. Uh, will feed your soul. I know that from firsthand experience. So thank you again for being with us today, Dave. Thank you, Richard, for inviting me. So great to be with you. We'll see you next time on the Toward Wholeness podcast.